Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Anyways, I want to welcome tonight, without further ado, uh, Father Joseph Mary. Welcome. Let us pray. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the great high priest, the one who has given his life for us. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to love as you love, to love with a heart like your own. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. Leo the Great, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm supposed to speak about prayer tonight. And there was a little boy who was overheard praying one night before going to bed. He's kneeling at his bedside and he said, Dear Lord, make me a good little boy. But if you can't, don't worry about it. I'm having a good time just as I am. <laughs> and another time, a mother and her daughter were working to fix Christmas meal. And they had everything ready. The little girl had helped her mom. And then they were standing around the table with all the invited guests. And the mother turned to the little girl and she says, Dear, can you say grace? She says, But mommy, I don't know what to say. She says, just say grace. She says, but mommy, I don't know what to say. She says, well, just say what you hear mommy saying all the time. So she bowed her head and she said, dear Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> so you have to be careful what you say around children. So tonight, Sabatino asked me to speak on prayer in the early church. And admittedly, I'm not an expert in this subject of prayer in early Christianity, and yet, as a monk, we pray a lot, and so I'll try to speak about prayer, especially in the early monastic tradition or in the Desert Fathers tradition. There was a desert monk named Evagrius who said, a theologian is one who prays, and one who prays is a theologian. So a theologian is one who prays, and one who prays is a theologian, which is what Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict, always said, as a theologian, is a servant of the church who is supposed to be a man of prayer. He doesn't create new doctrine. He doesn't change doctrine, but he elucidates doctrine within a spirit of prayer. And as a result, one who prays is a type of theologian. One who prays is going to be enlightened by God. St. John Vianney, who will be named patron of all priests tomorrow by Pope Benedict, he said once, I learned more on my knees than I did from books. Not that we're not to study, but God can enlighten us in ways much beyond what we can learn through books on our own. So prayer should guide us in our relationship with God and guide us in everything we think, say, and do. Our whole life, you might say, should be imbued in prayer or in a spirit of prayer such that we are truly men and women of prayer. I would think that the early Christians, because of the, the fervor of the early times, in the beginning of your marriage, there was this fervor, and then it kind of you know, perhaps evens out, and you have to keep working at it to keep that fervor, to keep that love there. So the early Christians, I think, were certainly were deep people of prayer, and particularly those who went into the desert to be alone with God. Once the persecutions ceased after the early 4th century, then the Christians began to go to the desert to be alone with God. The desert monks, we call them. So they are men, we are to be men and women who seek the face of God. Our whole life is to be a life spent in seeking the face of God. 
One of the fathers, Desert Fathers said, Prayer makes a monk the equal of the angels, for his desire is to behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So a monk, which comes from the word in Greek meaning alone, or by one who is alone, is one who goes apart to be alone with God in order to encounter the living God, in order to seek the face of the living God, in silence and solitude. But it's not just the vocation of a monk to seek the face of God, it's the vocation of every single Christian. So you in the world are to be searchers of the face of God because our ultimate destiny is to behold the face of God forever in heaven. Now the desert fathers, desert monks, the theologians, the mystics of the early church, the lay Christians, they steeped their spiritual life deeply in scripture. So much of the writings of the early fathers are very, very steeped in scripture. In this, our present Pope, Pope Benedict, is very scriptural. He goes back to the fathers of the church, to the holy scriptures again and again. Because why? The Word of God, Scripture and tradition, is the source of our faith. So if we begin at Scripture, we can see what Jesus himself taught us. Jesus taught us about prayer through his example and through his words. St. Thomas says if Jesus, who was always beholding the face of the Father, from the moment his soul was created, united to his flesh, his soul, his human soul, was given a special grace of seeing God face to face in the beatific vision. And yet, Scripture says he would go into the mountain alone to pray. He would rise early or he'd spend the night in prayer. Not that he needed to pray per se, he was always in the presence of the Father, but Thomas says that when Jesus would do something, it was to give us an example. So if he rose early in the morning or spent the night in prayer, it was especially to give us an example of prayer, how to pray. But also Jesus taught us through his words. In chapter 6 of St. Matthew's Gospel, Sermon on the Mountain, our Lord says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites who love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues and at the street corners in order that they may be seen by men. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Christ, first of all, teaches us when you pray, do it in secret. Doesn't mean we don't have public prayer. It means don't pray in order to be seen. Not like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who pray in order that they may be seen. And somebody says, ah, oh, he's so holy. That is, humility is so essential in our prayer. It's the humble one, the prayer of the humble one that penetrates the heavens. Scripture, the one of the Psalms says, God hears the cry of the poor, the cry of the little one. Humility is crucial for the spiritual life, for growth and holiness, and therefore for our prayer life. If we're filled with ourselves, we're not going to turn to God so much in prayer. If we're humble, emptied of ourselves, we'll turn more to God. This is a story from one of the Desert Fathers. As Abba Macarius was returning to his cell from the marsh carrying palm leaves, the devil met him with a sharp sickle and would have struck him, but he could not. He cried out, Great is the violence I suffer from you, Macarius, for when I want to hurt you, I cannot. But whatever you do, I do and more also. You fast now and then, but I am never refreshed by any food. You often keep vigil, but I never fall asleep. Only in one thing are you better than I am, and I acknowledge that. Macarius said to him, What is that? And he replied, It is because of your humility alone that I cannot overcome you. So it's our humility when we approach God that disarms the devil. The devil is always going to come, as he did to the Desert Fathers and as he does to Christians throughout the centuries, he comes to tempt us, to lead us away from God, especially in times of prayer. People will tell you, when I'm praying, the most horrible thoughts come to my mind. It's the devil, no doubt, trying to lead us away from God. But it's the humility with which we approach God that, you might say, disarms the devil. St. John Vianney, he said, the devil 
will ape every virtue, but he refuses to ape humility. He'll pretend he's pure, he'll pretend he's the Virgin Mary, he'll pretend he's this or that, but he refuses to humble himself. Even if God, who is infinite mercy, wanted to say to Lucifer, Lucifer, I forgive you, but I need you to acknowledge you were wrong. You have to say sorry. But the devil's so proud, he's so blinded by his pride, he refuses to acknowledge his error. So it's humility that's so crucial in our prayer. Jesus says when you pray, go into your room, close your door, pray in secret to your Father who hears you in secret. Further, our Lord says, but in praying, do not multiply words as the Gentiles do, for they think that by saying a great deal they will be heard. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, shall you pray. And He goes to the Our Father. Multiplication of words, that is, doesn't mean we cannot pray with many words, but the heart must be in it. And it doesn't mean we're to fill up our times of prayer with all vocal prayer. There's to be a times of silence. The fathers of the church recognized the importance of silence. Abba Nilus said, The arrows of the enemy cannot touch one who loves quietness, but he who moves about in a crowd will often be wounded. And another desert father said, they wanted this one holy desert father to say something to another one, and he said, Say a word or two to the bishop that his soul may be edified in this place by this holy desert father. And the father replied, if he is not edified by my silence, there is no hope that he will be edified by my words. So you can tell that to your spouse. <laughs> and then our Lord teaches the Our Father this beautiful prayer, this perfect prayer. A little boy was praying the Our Father and his mother heard him praying. He says, Our Father who does art in heaven. Howard is his name. He says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who pass trash against us. <laughs> and then he finished the Our Father. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from email. Amen. <laughs> now Jesus says, do not be like them, that is by rattling on empty prayers without the heart in it. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now the question is, why do we even pray if the Father already knows? your father knows what you need before you ask him. In our prayer, many times we ask and we ask and we ask and it doesn't seem like God hears or he doesn't grant what we would hope. You're praying for, I don't know, a jaguar. It doesn't come. God always hears and he always answers our prayers. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no, but he always answers. If he answers yes, it's because it's good for us. If he answers no, because he has something better for us or he wants us to wait. So St. Augustine asks the question, why do we pray if God already knows what we're going to say, he knows what he's going to give us, and he knows when he's going to give it to us? Why waste his time by bothering him? <laughs> well, he says, we don't pray to make known to God our petition. He already knows it. We don't pray to, you know, to convince God that we need it. He knows what he's, going, what he's going to give us. He says, we pray in order that our desire will increase to the point we're ready to receive the good gift that he's already prepared to give us. So it's not as if we're trying to convince God, but rather we're digging a deeper desire in our heart to receive the beautiful gift that God's going to eventually give us. And if he sees the desire is not great enough, he waits. You don't desire it enough yet. Keep praying. But dear Lord, it's been 20 years. I know, it's not very deep. <laughs> Keep praying. It's like a child who comes to his mother and says, Mommy, could I have a chocolate chip cookie? I've been a good little boy today. And the mother knows the child wants the cookie, but she's going to see if the child really wants the cookie. So the, child, the mother says to the child, No, honey. So the child leaves. Ten minutes later, the child comes back. Could I have the cookie? No, honey. child leaves. If the child never comes back, the mother knows the child didn't really want the cookie. If the child comes back 10 minutes later and asks again and again and again, and finally the mother gives you the cookie after two weeks of asking. <laughs> well, after two weeks of begging the mother for this cookie, when the mother finally gives the cookie to the child, the child is going to be so happy because the desire has been growing in the heart of that child for that cookie that he's been asking for for two weeks. Well, God is like that. Sometimes he says, no, not yet 
because He wants our desire to grow. And then finally, our Lord, in the end of the Our Father, after He gives the Our Father, He says, For if you forgive men their offenses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you your offenses. But if you do not forgive men, neither will your Father forgive you your offenses. That is, when we approach God in prayer, there has to be prayer joined to mercy. If you do not forgive men, neither will your Father forgive you your offenses. If we refuse mercy, it doesn't make sense to come and beg good things of God. If I'm refusing to give mercy to one who's begging it of me, and then I beg mercy of God, God's going to say, wait a second, there's an inconsistency here. So in order for our prayer to be more efficacious, we must come to God with a merciful heart, a loving heart, a heart like Christ. Now when we pray, in many of the desert fathers would use scriptural verses in their prayer. They would repeat a scriptural verse again and again. And that's not repeating, multiplying words, as Jesus says, but it becomes a prayer of the heart, such that St. Epiphanus says, the true monk must always have psalmody and prayer in his heart. That is, he's always raising his mind and heart to God, especially through scriptures. Now further, this life, the life of God, the life of the Spirit, whereby we are moved to pray, continuing with the scriptures, and then we'll go to the Desert Fathers, sprang from the heart of Christ. Because Jesus, in chapter 7 of St. John's Gospel, he says, on the now on the last day, John says, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from, within, from his heart there shall flow rivers of living water. He said this, however, of the Spirit, whom they who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Christ cries out, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John explains that living water, he meant, is the Spirit. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now when was this Spirit, this life of God, this life of prayer given? Jesus at the Last Supper, after Judas walks out, says, Now, Father, glorify your Son. Now begins the glory of the Son. It's, his glorification will be unleashed, unlynched by, unlynched by the Betrayal of Judas, which begins his passion, the Paschal mystery. And then finally at the cross, John witnesses this opening of the side of Christ. And out of Christ's side, out of his heart, comes blood and water. And then John, to emphasize the importance of what just took place, he says, he who saw it has borne witness. This is chapter 19 in John's Gospel, verse 35. And his witness is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall you break. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. So out of this wounded heart of Christ flows blood and water that is the life of God, the Spirit. It's the gift of the Spirit. The first Pentecost was at the cross, when the Holy Spirit came forth from the heart of Christ. That is the very life of God. And so this living water that gushed from the heart of Christ was understood by John and all the early Christians as the life of God, the life of grace. So we, as Christians, just like the early Christians, all Christians throughout the ages, must approach the heart of Christ to slake our thirst at the heart of Christ. Because it's from that heart comes forth this living water. And tomorrow we celebrate, tonight we begin to celebrate the Feast of the Sacred Heart, which will bring the year of the priest to, year for priest to an end tomorrow. But it's from this wounded heart that comes this life of God. And so God, you might say, has placed in our hearts a natural thirst for the infinite. We have a little limited heart that longs for the infinite. And that's why Jesus says, come to me. He who thirsts, come to me. You cannot be satisfied by anything else but me. You must come to me. We must drink from the source with the Jesus, his heart. There's an image, I think it's a painting or a statue 
of St. Bernard, and he's standing at the foot of the cross, and we think, or at least most crosses, have the right side of Jesus pierced, because a soldier would have plunged his lance into Jesus' side up and pierced the heart. So St. Bernard is standing here, and he has his lips glued to the side of Christ, and he's sucking in, drinking in the living water. Well, that's what prayer is. We're to be at the wounded heart of Christ, drinking in this living water, the life of God. It's an image. Don't be too... It's an image. It was a mystical experience St. Bernard had. He had his lips glued to the heart of Christ, drinking this living water. St. Ambrose says, one of the early fathers of the church, Drink of Christ, for he is the fountain of life. Drink of Christ, for he is the stream whose torrents brought joy to the city of God. Drink of Christ, for he is peace. Drink of Christ, for the streams of living water flow from his bosom. And so it's at the cross that Christ gave the Spirit. This living water flowed from his heart. So it's by being there that we'll receive this gift of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit, as Paul says, who comes to our aid to teach us how to pray. He says, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit comes to our aid and teaches us how to pray with inexpressible groanings we pray. The Holy Spirit prays in us. And through this prayer of the Holy, the Holy Spirit acting in us, Paul says we must pray always, pray without ceasing. And this is a central theme of the desert fathers, praying always. Would you say that's impossible? I have to sleep. One of the Psalms says, my, or rather one of the uh, scripture passages in the Old Testament says, I sleep, but my heart watches. How, how therefore, though, can we pray unceasingly, as Paul says? Pray always. Is it possible? Well, the desert fathers speak often about this unceasing prayer. So what does it mean? How are we to do such? Again, this same desert monk, Evagrius, he says, we are not given a prescription to constantly work, watch, and fast, but for us it is a law to pray without ceasing. Now, does that apply to lay people in the world? Can you pray while changing your child's diapers? Can you pray while sleeping? Can you pray while sleeping in an adoration chapel? <laughs> this is a story of the desert father, Lucius. So some monks came to see Abba Lucius, and they said to him, We do not work with our hands. We obey Paul's command and pray without ceasing. So we're not going to work. I kind of like that. The old man said, Do you not eat or sleep? They said, Yes, we do. He said, who prays for you while you are asleep? Excuse me, brothers, but you do not practice what you claim. I will show you how I pray without ceasing, though I work with my hands. With God's help, I collect a few palm leaves and sit down and weave them, saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, after your great goodness. According to the multitude of your mercies, do away with my offenses. He said to them, Is this prayer or not? They said, Yes, it is. And he continued, when I have worked and prayed in my heart all day, I make about 16 pennies. Two of these I put outside my door, and with the rest I buy food. And he who finds the two coins outside the door prays for me while I eat and sleep. And so by the help of God, I pray without ceasing. <laughs> so he prayed while working, and he prayed while sleeping, because somebody was praying for him while he slept, because he had given them, given them alms. What it means is we need to find, as the Desert Fathers did, a balance in prayer, work, study. That is, a balance between our natural life and our supernatural life. Which, in fact, everything is our supernatural life when it's done in God. So, work, or rather study, disposes us to prayer, prepares us for prayer. And in a sense, you might say our work completes our prayer. Or continues our prayer. St. Benedict in the 5th century wrote the, his famous rule that changed Western civilization, Western culture, and he said he called for a healthy balance between aura, prayer, opus Dei, the work of God, 
and labora work. So the monks divided, divide their day with prayer, work, prayer, work, prayer, work, prayer, work. And in that sense, they're always praying. Another desert monk, John of Gaza, he told an anchorite, when you've done three rows of meshes on your net, get up to pray. Having knelt down and also stood up, do your praying. After that, you sit down again for manual work. So you pray a while, work, pray, work, pray. And another example is Anthony of the Desert, the father of desert of the monasticism, Western monasticism. One day he was dis discouraged because he had to, you know, sometimes stop to work. He couldn't pray always. So he pleaded with God to show him what he must do to be freed from his confusion. He then saw someone like himself sitting down to work, then getting up to pray, sitting down again and plating cord, then getting up again to pray some more. It was an angel of the Lord sent to lead and reassure him. And he heard the angel declare, Do this and you will be saved. Upon hearing, Anthony was overjoyed and filled with new courage. So it was a balance between work, prayer, work, prayer. And his work was his prayer. One of our priests, as an example, was a hermit for about 20 years, 22 years, in southern France. His name was Father Jean, John. And Father Jean, John, John, his motto in French was Veillez et Priez. So he was like a modern-day desert monk. Veillez et Priez. Watch and pray. Because Jesus said, watch and pray. You do not know the hour. Meaning always be praying because you don't know when the Lord's coming. So this uh, brother of ours, this hermit, took it literally and he would sleep for a couple hours, but he never slept in a bed. For 20 years, he slept in a chair, sitting up. So he would doze off for a couple of hours. After two hours, he'd wake up and he'd walk through the woods praying his rosary. And then he'd come back to his hermitage, sit down, sleep for a couple more hours, wake up, walk around the woods praying his rosary. He did this all through the night for 20-some years. He was watching and praying, watching and praying. And he has lots of legends around him, but he also supposedly would buy big grains of wheat and he would just grab a handful of wheat and eat that for the day. That was his meal. Well, finally, after 20-some years in his hermitage, our superiors asked him to go to Africa to begin, or to help build a new monastery. He was, had been an engineer before he became a monk. So he obeyed. He went. He was there a month. One morning, at the, after the morning office, they, he wasn't there, so they went to his cell to see what had happened. And they opened the door. He had his back to the door. He was sitting up in his chair as always. He had been sleeping. The brother came around and looked. He had his head slumped over. He had died. The good thief came and got him while he was watching and praying. So on his tombstone today, they've engraved Veille et Prier, his motto, watch and pray. But that was an example, that's an example of someone who watched and prayed, but he was also a hard worker. He'd work hard all day doing manual work, and then he would spend the night watching and praying. And yet, while he was working, he was watching and praying. So what about us? If the Desert Fathers and Paul and Jesus himself gives us such a beautiful example, prayed always, how are we to do such? Are we called to do such? Or is it only for the monks? They have nothing else to do anyway. How do we pray always? How do we pray humbly? How do we obtain an interior silence? So often we have lots of noise going on in our imagination, in our mind. We need to learn to quiet ourselves. And first of all, by you know, staying in reality. The imagination carries us off into outer space. You're in Adoration Chapel. Dear Lord, I love you so much. <laughs> And before long, you're somewhere out on Mars looking at all the Martians, taking their temperature, <laughs> checking them out. We get distracted so easily, so quickly, but we mustn't get discouraged. So how do we obtain this interior silence? How do we pray humbly? How do we pray always? Well, first of all, the Desert Fathers teach us to pray always with a pure heart. St. Thomas Aquinas says, the one who's pure will more easily raise his mind and heart to spiritual things. The one who's weighed down by 
the flesh, the things of the flesh, will have a more difficult time and less of a desire to raise his mind to spiritual things. So already to have a pure heart. And it's a pure heart that will see God. Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Meaning nobody can see God on earth in the darkness of faith. Nobody can see God in the beatific vision unless he has a pure heart. Meaning it has, our heart has to be purified. And how is it purified? By getting married, maybe? Being a monk? It's purified by love. St. Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. And how is it also purified? By suffering with love. Or in the midst of our, loving in the midst of our sufferings. It's suffering that purifies, but suffering with love. Suffering joined to love. Such that we must be purified on earth by the cross or be purified in purgation, purgatory, by suffering with love. So somehow the heart has to be purified to see the all-pure God. And that's through suffering with love. So we must seek the face of God always. He's the one for whom we exist and we're made to see God. St. Teresa of Avila, as a little girl, had been told, you must die to see God. And so she, one day with her older brother, who was just, she was just a little girl and he wasn't much older, they left the walled city of Avila and were wandering in the desert outside of Avila. And one of their relatives found them, said, children, this is dangerous. You could have been killed because at that time the Muslims were still in that area. You could have been killed. And little Teresa responded, but you told me I have to die to see God and I want to see God. So she was going out there hoping somebody would kill her so she could see God. So that should be our cry, I want to see God. That's why the monks went into the desert, was to be able to be more ready to see God, to, be, to have a purer heart. Psalm 105 says, seek his face always. So what does that mean? For us, as for the Desert Fathers, for the early Christians, it means to seek the face of God in all things, in all places, at all times. When I'm a person of prayer, I will see God everywhere. When I love, I see my beloved everywhere. That is, I learn to see God in every situation, whether it's a difficult situation or not a difficult situation. St. Teresa of Avila again, she said, I find God in the bottoms of the pots and pans. While she was doing dishes, scrubbing the pots and pans, there was God, because that's what God wanted her to do. St. John Berkman, a young Jesuit who died as a novice, he was playing uh, pool with his fellow novices, and they asked him, what would you do if Jesus were to come back in a few minutes? They thought he would say, I'd run to the chapel, fall on my knees, and pray. His answer was, I would keep playing pool. Meaning, I'm doing God's will now, I'm finding God now, recreating because it's God's will for me, and I'm going to continue doing that because it's his will. And he'll find me playing pool and beating you, perhaps. <laughs> so the one who loves always sees his beloved everywhere. So such that the more we love, thanks to our union with God through prayer, the more we're going to see God in this car accident, in this broken leg, in this good thing, in this grace, in this difficulty, we'll see God everywhere, in all things. That's why seeking the face of God will be completed, perfected, will reach its end in heaven, but we already find the face of God here on earth, in our brothers and sisters, in suffering, in everything. And yet, in seeking him and finding him, then we seek him all the more. We find him, and he's place hide and seek with us. So we have to keep searching. Because we can never exhaust the mystery of God. Pope John Paul II said the third millennium should be a millennium dedicated to seeking the face and contemplating the face of God. Meaning it should be a contemplative millennium. Millennia, the first millennium was quite contemplative. Second millennium was the great expansion, the missionary expansion. 
Third millennium should be perhaps again a contemplative millennium. St. Augustine would say, let us seek as though, let us seek God, that is, let us seek as those who are going to find and find as those who are going to go on seeking. Let us seek as those who are going to find and find as those who are going to go on seeking. We find him and then we can always go deeper and we keep seeking. In chapter 18 of Sirvak, it says, when a man has finished, then it is that he is beginning. So we think, ah, I'm such a saint now, I can die. But God always can take us further. He always takes us further and further. St. Francis of Assisi, after doing something with his brothers, a preaching mission or whatever, he would say, brothers, let us begin to do some good. And they said, but we just converted 20,000 people. But he would say, we've never done enough good for the Lord. Let us begin to do some good for the Lord. So our life here on earth is a continual search for happiness. How many of you want to be unhappy the rest of your time on earth? Nobody. Aristotle says, man by nature wants to be happy. That's just the way we're designed by God. There's not a human being who says, I love misery. Oh, I'm so happy when I'm miserable. No, we by nature want to be happy. That is, we want to be fulfilled. We want to reach a certain end for which we're made. The problem is, every human being seeks happiness, but some seek happiness in the wrong places. And so they think they're seeking happiness, and then they're miserable because it was the wrong, it wasn't something for which their heart could, how would I say, their heart was not made for that particular reality. And so even when somebody is seeking God or seeking happiness in the wrong places, unconsciously they're seeking God. They're seeking the perfect happiness which only God can give. G.K. Chesterton said, excuse the example he uses, he says when a man goes into a brothel, he's really seeking God. I Meaning he's thinking this is going to bring him happiness, but in fact he's really seeking God in the midst of this sinful desire. And so it is. When we seek something good, or what we think is good, or something that's not at all good for us, we're really seeking the infinite goodness, the infinite good, God. So our whole life, just like that of the early Christians and the Desert Fathers, should be this constant search for God, constant search of the face of God. That is trying to seek God at all times, in all places, Praying unceasingly in good times and bads, good in season and out of season, Paul says, preaching the good news, praying always, doing all with love. Because when we do all with love, then everything becomes a prayer. So that's how we can pray always. When we're loving as God wants us to love, then we are praying always. No matter what I'm doing, if I'm doing it with love, it's a prayer. If I sleep with love, it's a prayer. If I change diapers with great love, it's a very pleasing prayer to God. To do all with love for God, and it's a prayer, pleasing to God. And the more we love, the more sensitive we become to the one we love, and therefore we're going to be more and more conscious of his presence the more we love him. And we're going to therefore see him everywhere. Nothing will surprise us, nothing will, be, will destroy us because we find God, whatever may happen. Because when we love, we see our beloved everywhere. And what helps us further to pray always is to learn, as St. Gregory Palamas, one of the desert fathers says, one of the early fathers said, says, when you pray, he's quoting Christ, enter into your closet, and when you shut your door, pray to the Father who is in secret. He says the closet, or the, the secret room of the soul, is the body. Our doors, that is, we go into the side, interior, this interior silence, interior life, we close the door. He says the doors are the five bodily senses. So when you go inward to encounter God, he says you have to learn to close the doors, the senses. So when you're in the Adoration Chapel, you're not looking around to see who's, who else is there. What is she reading? Hmm. Close the door, the five bodily senses. Close the doors, which are the five bodily senses. St. Augustine said, O oh Lord, I sought you in all the beauty of your creation, but I did not remember to, or he said, I didn't look inward. It was inside in my in the inner person, in his 
person that he found God. I sought you in all the things exterior to myself. St. Gregory says, The soul enters its closet when the mind does not wander hither and thither, roaming among things and affairs of the world, but stays within in our heart. Our senses become closed and remain closed when we do not let them be attached to external sensory things. And in this way, our mind remains free from every worldly at attachment and by secret mental prayer unites with God its Father. So that's what helps us to remain in a spirit of prayer always. Doesn't mean we're, we ignore the exterior things around us, but we learn to always go inward. The world, the devil tries to always pull us out of ourselves to exterior things. He doesn't want us to go inward to the interior life where God is, but to pull us out to exterior things. So learn to mortify our senses, you might say, our curiosity to hear, our curiosity to see, our curiosity to say, or our desire to say things very quickly. St. Bernard, when he would go into the church to pray, as he would take holy water and bless himself, and he'd say, world, stay outside, Bernard's going in to pray. <laughs> so when you go to pray, take holy water, say, world, out, I'm going in to pray, to encounter the living God. And it's not just in the church, it's always, wherever I am. So in spirit, we want to stay at the wounded heart of Christ, glued to the heart of Christ, the source of love, the source of the living water, and to thereby to learn to love as Jesus loves. And the more we love as Jesus loves, the more we'll be conscious of the Father's presence as Christ always was conscious of the Father's presence. We must ardently seek his face on earth such that one day this ardent search for God's face on earth will open up to the beatific vision where we will see him in the face-to-face -face vision. John says we will see him as he is. We will see God as he is. Now what does that mean? Obviously we can't see God as he is. If we saw God as he is, we would become God. But we each of us will be able to see God as he is according to our capacity. St. Therese said she was scandalized that there's different degrees of sanctity in heaven. You know, why is this one up here and this one's down here? Till her sister explained to her, she says, you know, each person is like a container, different sized containers, but each container is perfectly filled. So in heaven, each of us will see God to our degree of holiness, but we will be perfectly happy. But nobody will be able to see God as God is in the sense of seeing God in the infinite. Is the inf I would say, we cannot comprehend God, as St. Thomas says. Otherwise, we'd be God. But each to his capacity will see the living God. The more we love on earth, the more we will know God in heaven, know and love God in heaven. So our love, the degree of love on earth, is the degree of intensity or degree of penetration into the mystery of God that we will enjoy for eternity. That's why our life on earth is so, 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 so important. Our eternity depends on how we spend our earthly life and most especially how we love. St. John of the Cross said, in the evening of life, at the moment of death, we will be judged on our love, not on how many degrees you had, how intelligent you were, how beautiful you were, how ugly you were, how slow you were. You'll be judged on your love. And so we want to constantly seek the face of God on earth, so one day to contemplate God forever in heaven. And our prayer on earth is always a prayer in the darkness of faith. But one day it will open up to the heavenly liturgy, the divine liturgy of heaven, where we will sing the praises of God forever. We'll be constantly, eternally in adoration of God, in awe and ah, wonder of God. For all eternity we'll go, ah, 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 ah. We'll be in awe and wonder of God. In Scripture it says, in Revelation, and there was silence in heaven for a half hour. So for, ah, ah, it's obviously metaphorical, but there is a certain sense of that God is this awesome other will be constantly in all of God, in adoration of God. That's what the gift of fear is. Gift of fear on earth is I love God so much, I do not want to do anything to offend the one I love. I fear to offend the one I love. Well, that gift of fear in heaven is this sense of, ah, this awe, this wonder before the infinite good, the one who is so good, so merciful. So our prayer on earth is in view of this eternal 
liturgy of heaven, this eternal heavenly adoration of God, such that we'll be there with Our Lady, the Queen of Angels and Saints, with all the saints, the Desert Fathers, the angels, and forever we'll be giving God our love and adoration. So be good on earth, so that you one day be in heaven. God willing, each of us will be in heaven. And as we I tell people sometimes, we'll probably never ever see each other again, the same people who are here tonight, we'll never ever see each other again all together, but we hope we'll all see each other in heaven. So make sure you're there. <laughs> Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord, teach us how to pray as you taught your apostles and help us to love as you love so one day to contemplate you in a face-to-face vision. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph Mary. Thank you. Don't go too far, Father, because you've got to have questions here. We're going to take a quick break as normal, and then we'll come back together for some question and answer time. Okay, questions. Does anybody pray? <laughs> Pardon? Uh, this, she asked which books. One is called The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. The other is called Early Fathers from the Philo. How do you pronounce it? There you go. I'm from Kentucky, so I don't know how to pronounce these big words. And in daily readings with the Desert Fathers. What do we know about the prayer life of the early churches before um, the persecution of the early churches ended? What do we know about the prayers in the home churches? And we mostly, at, at least, I'm, I, again, I'm like Sabatino. I'm not real versed in the early Christian prayer life, other than the liturgy, the description of the liturgies, like St. Justin Martyr gives a description of the Mass. So that was about the year 100, a little right around 100, yes. He gives a description of the Mass. So we know that in the, actually the apostles said they would gather and pray, you know, they break bread and pray. Aside from that, I'm not, I don't know, for example, the certain devotions that we have today obviously didn't exist. Eucharistic adoration, I don't think was present at that time, praying the rosary, divine mercy chaplet, <laughs> green scapular, brown scapular. <laughs> Certainly they would gather together to pray, and often it had to be in hiding, just like in persecuted countries of today, or countries where the Christians are persecuted, they have to hide for the mass, for prayer. We had a brother who was in um, Turkey for a year, and he, he could wear his habit within the house, but as soon as he came out, he had to wear secular clothes. So it was a type of soft persecution. So he would pray, he, whenever he would celebrate the Mass, it had to be, he could not, there was no church in which he could celebrate it, I don't think, or he had to do it private home or in a secret way. Or not exactly in a secret way, but in a, couldn't be out in a public forum. Father, you were talking about uh, like, like closing the door and going into your room, which is the, the soul, to pray. Um, and how, I don't remember who, but someone suggested that this was closing the senses to find God in your inner self. Right. In your heart. We'll say in your heart. <laughs> in your heart, yes. Been wondering if, if it, it can't actually be appropriate sometimes to pray with your, with your eyes open, actually making any progress. You're just kind of thinking. You're wrapped yeah. up in your thought. And, and whereas, whereas you can then ground yourself in reality where, uh, by opening your eyes sometimes. Yes, definitely. When I say close the senses, it means to unnecessary distractions and things that will keep us from going further in communion with God. But some, you know, you can be looking at a painting or a statue and obviously be led to deep prayer. So the danger sometimes of closing our senses, so to speak, is then we float off in an imaginary world. So we have to find the balance. Use our senses, but in a way that's not going to distract us from, from God, from prayer. Uh, Father, I'm wondering whether as a community there is a particular style or combination of styles of prayer that you use in the community of St. John? Uh, well, we have 45 minutes of what we call silent prayer in the morning. So it's a time of we're all in the chapel together in silence before Christ in the Eucharist. And then we have another hour of Eucharistic adoration in the evening. So that those are the two focuses of the day or the two pillars when it's more private. 
but as a community together. And then we sing the office together four, th three, four times a day, depending on the day. So the divine office, which is a vocal prayer, but the prayer of the church as a community again. And then obviously the heart of the day is the mass. Uh, we do in our community, however, use our bodies more than perhaps in some other communities. And we will kneel. I don't know if some of you may have heard of Father Antoine, Children's Adoration. He's on EWTN. Well, he'll show the little children how to pray. So they get on their knees and then they'll you know, squat or bow over as the children at Fatima were taught by the angel to bow with the hip face to the ground as an act of adoration. Now, sometimes people think it's a Muslim posture, <laughs> but one of our priests was in the church praying, bowed over like that, and a priest came up and tapped him on the shoulder and says, oh, this is not a place for Muslims to pray. <laughs> <laughs> but he was using, we use our body as well as a means to help us to pray, be more focused. St. Dominic has, what is it, six to seven forms of prayer posture, you know, with his arms extended, with lying flat on his face. Once they were looking for Pope John Paul II, Bishop McGee tells us, and they couldn't find him for a particular ceremony, and they were looking everywhere, and his Polish secretary, Stanislaw, said, well, did you look in the chapel? And they said, yes. He said, well, go f you know, look again, but look closer up to the altar and look on the floor. He went in, and there was John Paul II prostrate before the floor, and they said, on the floor, and they said that he would remain prostrate in prayer many times all through the night before doing Episcopal ordinations. Another, well, another time they were looking for the Pope, they couldn't find him. Finally, this nun found him and she says, Holy Father, we've been worried about your holiness. He says, well, I am too. <laughs> Prayer uh, is a grand, uh, significant contention between Catholics and Protestants. Can you... Um, touch upon the way in which the prayer of the Desert Fathers especially is Catholic um, rather than Protestant? It's always well, in Christ as would a, you know, as a Protestant would pray. But the, the Desert Fathers, at least those who were priests, I would presume, would have offered the Mass. There would have been the Mass, or at least they would have, some of them would have gathered together for the Divine Office, which I'm not, some Protestant groups have the Divine Office or pray the Psalms as a community. Um, I'm not sure how Marian it was, but there could have been some Marian dimension to it that the Protestants obviously would not have. When did the divine office start being used by the monks? I think the divine office grew out of the synagogue. The Jews would gather together to pray, pray the Psalms because they said they would go up to the temple at the ninth hour or the sixth hour. So it was just a natural extension of the Jewish practice. The apostles, no doubt, were praying the Psalms together as a community, I would think. They would break bread and pray the Psalms. The Psalms have always been a part of the liturgy from the very beginning. Uh, for example, with the Mass, with the extraordinary form, is particularly uh, clear. The priest, at the, as he enters, as the introit, and it's one, they're singing one of the Psalms. But communities praying the psalm to, Psalms together, I think, I began certainly from the very beginning, but when was it crystallized as a community? I think certainly after the persecutions when they could gather more easily. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>